Hello, my name's Connor O'Hagan and I'm a bit of a bird watcher. I say a bit advisedly because I don't watch birds methodically, exhaustively, obsessively or even particularly knowledgeably. I just tend to notice them perhaps a little bit more than most people and what can I say, I enjoy noticing them and I like talking about them. So in this series of signatized podcasts, which I'm calling Bird Table, why not? I'm going to do exactly that and hopefully spread the love a little, as they say. And to that end, I'm going to be assisted by somebody before whose greater knowledge I can only bow. Niall Hatch, as some of you will already know, is Public Relations Officer for Birdwatch Ireland. Niall, the Irish climate being what it is, will probably oscillate between late winter and early spring for several weeks to come. But there's already a noticeable electricity in the air, I think, with a lot of the more visible bird species starting to show more interest in each other. Very much so, Connor. Yes, uh, we've passed the uh, the winter solstice now. So what's happening is as the days are getting longer, there's more daylight. This triggers hormones in the birds that get them into breeding conditions. So it's still too early for most of the species to be nesting, but it's certainly on their minds. So they're practicing their songs and they're looking out for possible territories where they where they can nest and trying to get an advantage over other. <coughs> sorry. Trying to get an advantage over other birds, so hopefully uh, soon they, they will they will be back in full in full swing, absolutely in full flow. Yeah, no less than our own, I suppose. The lives of birds are run by hormones in a variety of ways, including behaviour and even appearance. Yes, it's very important that the male birds in particular are looking as, as fine as they possibly can uh, because it's life or death for them. It might be their only chance to reproduce. They have to impress a female or in some species more than one female and she'll be impressed by the male who's in the best condition. Absolutely. It's also a way to intimidate rival males uh, and that is when the birds do get very aggressive. And you're quite right. As you said, that's controlled by hormones. The birds have very little say in it. Um, it's testosterone that uh, the most affects that. That makes the males very territorial, very aggressive towards each other. So we're having the situation now where species um, such as chaffinches and greenfinches that have been happily living side by side in flocks of many many birds together all of a sudden become much more selfish and uh, much more keen to try and eliminate the competition so that's uh, that's what they're doing at the moment in fact many of our birds i think move from communal flocking behavior in winter to maintaining individual territories for breeding so it really is war out there in the spring and to the victor the spoils. It is. Robins are very anti-social birds. And so seeing two of them together at this time of the year, it's um, it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual. Uh, certainly when it comes into the springtime and they're singing their breeding songs, uh, then of course it takes two to tango. So the male and female do tolerate each other then. But outside the breeding season, they keep separate territories and they will fight to the death if it comes down to it. Most of the fighting among birds is, is done through their songs. Um, songs are a really aggressive thing. We, we humans think of them as being like beautiful music uh, to the birds it's a form of fighting a really really sort of very macho behavior but in in the uh, in the robin the female also sings particularly in the winter months and um, so she does keep a separate territory uh, i think you know a lot of people contact birdwatch ireland to talk about robins they're probably the nation's favorite bird and justifiably they're, they're very cute they're um, they're really confiding a beautiful song uh, but people make the mistake of thinking that they're friendly and uh, people talk about their friendly robin the fact is they um, they're incredibly aggressive towards each other and it's not that they're you know particularly fond of us humans either Either. they've learned that they can exploit us they've learned that, they, that we're not so bad that we can be tolerated so they're able to take food that's near us and live close to us most other birds haven't evolved that way so they're much more frightened of us and maybe waste energy trying to get away from us or to avoid our uh, human habitation or when we're out walking they, they stay away from us robins have learned well actually we can cope with these humans and uh, you know they seem to they, they seem to not be so scary so we can get food from them we take that as being friendly because we humans always want to be liked um, but the robins don't see it that way at all. 
I did hear a theory once, and I've got no idea how well-founded it is, that robins evolved as creatures of the woodland and forest fringe, so they were among the first species to come into regular contact with humans as they, the humans I mean, moved into new territories, which gave robins something of a head start in adapting their own reactions. Yes, I think there's a lot in that. And it's also a species that has never been seen really as a pest to, to humans. So some birds like, like sparrows, for example, starlings, they've over the years been seen as maybe a threat to agriculture or a problem, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but with robins, there's no downside to them. They don't compete with us. They don't uh, damage our crops or our gardens. So people are very happy to tolerate them. And, and so they wouldn't have maybe chased them away or persecuted them in the way that some other birds may have been persecuted. I think with robins too, they had an advantage to begin with because um, they they were they evolved to follow creatures through the, their forest habitats so you know robins are very common all across europe but that's this tameness around humans it's it's um it's more pronounced in ireland and britain than it would be on the continent and um, you can still get some confiding robins on the continent but they tend to be birds that tuck themselves away a bit more in the forest and what they do there is rather than follow humans they follow wild boar that are snuffling through the leaf litter. So they evolved in association with that species. So they have learned to, or, or did evolved or adapted, to follow a larger species that's digging up in the ground. And it may very well have been the advantage that they had over other birds when it came to felling some of those forests to make way for agriculture, ploughing the land, then planting gardens and so on as well. They were better able to cope with that than, for example, a song thrush might have been, or, or a bird like a blackbird even. And possibly that willingness to stay close actually conferred an advantage in as much as it gave them first pickings of whatever feeding opportunities human or wild boar activity created. Yeah, I find that evolution is a really fascinating process. It's, it's something that's going on all around us all the time. It's not just something that happened in the time of the dinosaurs. It's still ongoing today. And it must have been uh, that um, some robins were um, keener, I suppose, because of for genetic reasons, they just were maybe better risk takers. They decided to take food that was close to boar or humans, where some other robins, uh, maybe they didn't have the genetic makeup that allowed them to do that. There was just a mental block there that prevented them from doing it. Uh, and what happened was the ones that were bolder and braver around other creatures uh, survived better they got better food they had uh, maybe there was protection from predators there because the predators were less likely to approach humans or boar or whatever and so they had a survival advantage which meant that they were the ones who were successful they had more chicks they passed on those genes to the next generation and that's how evolution happens these uh, these advantageous behaviors get rewarded by natural selection and then and then increased would you like to win a top-of-the-range Doro smartphone? Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text, plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. To enter the competition to win that Doro phone, visit seniortimes.ie and just answer one simple question. Or visit and like us on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones. Make friends with innovation. One very important strategy for birds, of course, is the ability to breed several times in a season. I know not all birds do, but for those that can, and I think that includes robins, getting off to an early start is crucial. Robins will will have multiple broods, usually at least two during during the season. And uh, that's, again, an evolutionary thing that's happened because their lifespans are so short. Um, a lot of people contact us in Birdwatch Ireland saying, you know, they've had the same robin coming to their garden every day for the last 20 years and, they, you know, they, they know it well. And in fact, it's impossible for a robin to live that long. I think that the, the world record was a robin once made it to eight, uh, but even that's exceptional. 
Uh, that's a very geriatric robin. Uh, if they make it to two or three, they're doing well. So they won't have too many nesting seasons under their belt. They have to maximize their opportunities to pass on the genes to the next generation. That's what their lives are all about. Um, you know, it doesn't, you know, from, from, from an evolutionary point of view, it doesn't matter if they die, if they've left lots of offspring. And ultimately all a pair of robins or any other bird have to do is leave uh, two young surviving to adulthood themselves to replace themselves in the population. Uh, so it just shows you that, you know, the, the, you know, obviously robins are doing well as a species, but they're not massively increasing. They're quite stable. So it just shows you how many of their chicks must die. If they're having, you know, two clutches of, of seven chicks per summer, that's 14 per year. They're lasting, the pair might last for two or three years. So let's say, you know, let's, give, let's say maybe 30 plus chicks that they're having. On average, only two will survive to replace their parents in the population. And then for birds that are under more pressure, that's even, even higher. So a bird like a swallow, for example. The swallows migrate to us in, here in Ireland uh, for, for the summer. Uh, right now they're down in Southern Africa, about to make the journey back. They have to do that journey because there isn't enough food here for them in the summer. They feed, feed on small flying insects. But it's a big risk and most of the swallows don't survive the migration. It's just the fittest of the fit that do. So they really have to go for it when they get a chance to breed. So they'll have three or even four broods when they're here in, in Ireland. You know, once they've survived their first migration, they might live another couple of years. So it's actually not inconceivable that a pair of, of uh, swallows could, could maybe have a hundred chicks uh, throughout the course of their, their short lifespan. But of those, on average, only two will survive to replace their parents. So 98% of them will die. Um, and that's a really sobering thought. Yeah, the arrival of swallows, swifts and martins really is one of the great joys of spring, partly because they're so visible, I think. Migration in general is quite an astounding aspect of bird behaviour, but how long does it take for our visitors to make those journeys? Well, for birds when they're migrating, depending on the species, uh, the length of time it takes depends on how leisurely they can do it. Obviously, if they can take their time more and, and can respond to, to changes in weather, uh, that's a big advantage to them. So a bird like a swallow, when it's migrating, hopefully it could be able to find food while it's flying. So if it has to stop for a couple of days because of bad weather, um, you know, it can, do, it can afford to do that. It might be harder for birds that would have to cross big expanses of water. So if you're a bird like a wheat ear, which is another, um, another summer migrant, um, some of the ones that pass through Ireland actually would, would then breed in Canada. It's one of the longest distances that any songbird would ever fly. Well, they have to fly over open water to do that. Um, right now at the moment, in, we have birds called red wings that come to us from Iceland. Again, they have to cross open water. Uh, they can't feed on the way and they can't rest. So they have to do it faster. Swallows can sleep for the night um, in reed beds or in trees. They can catch food. And, and, you know, and what they have to do is they have to make sure they're in peak condition for when they have to cross the biggest barrier of all, which is the Sahara Desert. If they're not in perfect physical condition before they do that, with your full load of fuel, they won't survive because that's like their ocean. There's no, um, there's no food for them to, to, to be able to feed on there. So just have to blast across it in one go. So for swallows coming from Southern Africa, the whole process takes about a couple of months because they can take their time doing it. Uh, but for a bird like a red wing coming from Iceland, okay, not such a far distance, but still significant, they do that in one night. So they'll leave in the evening and then arrive here by the following morning. Hearing a flock of red wings arriving at night can be quite an experience. They make some strange noises in flight, don't they? Yes, that's right. It's a, it's a very sort of thin metallic kind of noise. And yet it's something that I very much associate with their migration. So we hear a bit of it at this time of year, but then in the next couple of weeks, especially as we come into March, we will start hearing it more. And that's, you always give it at night. And that's a, a contact call between the flocks of red wings to keep together when it's dark and they can't see each other, but there's still safety in numbers, so they fly together. Now, this is a, a sound that fascinates me because pretty much every person in Ireland has heard this. Um, it's pretty prevalent on October nights. We've all heard it, but most people have never registered it. And the brain has a way of filtering out those sounds. It's just irrelevant background noise. So people don't even know it. 
But what I find is once you demonstrate to someone, if you point out, that's a red wing calling, listen, it's going to call again, and then it calls again. Once that's fixed in someone's mind, you can never not hear it again. It's like turning on a switch that can't be switched off again. Uh, um, so that's something I love. And it just shows when you know those calls, it, it makes migration sync a very real thing. These are, these are tiny little feathered creatures undertaking massive movements, and it's life or death for them. You know, it really is difficult, and I have a lot of respect for them. Which brings me nicely to a point I try to make to people who are maybe under the impression that bird watching is about ticking off lists of species or converging on lonely spots to catch a short glimpse of a rarity through a long lens, each to his own, of course. But to me, it's far more about understanding the familiar, the things that are around us all the time. I think that's one of the things that I like most about bird watching and having an interest in nature. I think sometimes people, especially when they're beginning, they can become overly obsessed with trying to put names to everything that they see or you know, trying to compete with other people and get the biggest list. And if you want to do that, that's great. And then that can be very enjoyable. But I think it's even more important to try and make sense of what you're seeing and to enjoy the birds that you're watching. And you're right. I think that learning about the behavior of birds, um, you know, that could, that could tell us a lot. There's still a lot we don't even know about the behavior of some of our most common bird species. And I think that during the lockdown because of COVID, a lot of people, even some very seasoned bird watchers who might have become a bit jaded about the common species, uh, you know, they gained a new appreciation for them because they're the only birds that they could see. They were confined to the areas just around their homes and to their back gardens. And they were, for the first time, noting, noticing things like the, 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 the amazing mating behaviour of the dunnock, for example, a very common garden bird. A lot of people don't know them. It used to be known as the hedge sparrow. Um, they seem very drab and boring, but when you get to know them, they have the most salacious sex lives of any creature on the planet. And there's all sorts of extra marital affairs going on uh, there's all sorts of um, all sorts of sneaking behind each other's back within the pair all sorts of um, polyamorous relationships going on and this is just in your own back garden so that's something that fascinated me um, things as well like watching uh, watching birds ant bathing you know the anting where, where blackbirds would lie down and let the ants crawl over their feathers that's you know sometimes people would contact us in bird and say god you know I've never seen this before I'm at home working from home during the lockdowns now and um, I, I've never noticed this blackbird seems to be sick it's behaving very very strangely this obviously is something that would happen many times in their garden they were just at work in their offices or commuting or whatever and never noticed it but when people stop and look there's so much interesting behavior all around us having said that it is a bit of a thrill to spot something new a couple of days ago for the first time in my very urban garden in Inchicore in dublin i noticed a dunnock that's a very common bird but i just hadn't seen one before in the six years i've lived here or maybe I had and thought it was a sparrow because, of course, the Dunnock's alias is, or at least was, hedge sparrow. Yes, and the name has fallen out of favour because, you know, although although they do very much like hedges, as you say, they're not sparrows at all. They're actually a member of a family called the Accenters, and not to get too technical about it, but it's a different group of birds that are found across um, much of Europe and particularly Asia. But in most of their range, they're, they're species of high, high mountains. They're altitude species, whereas the Dunnock, um, pretty much alone, um, is found at sea level and happily comes into gardens. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's quite different to what one would expect for the rest of its family. Uh, but um, there's a few differences to sparrows, of course. Sparrows being many seed eaters with that big strong beak for crushing seeds. The dunnock's fine thin pointed bill tells us that it's mainly an insect eater. You can tell a lot about the, what birds, what their diets would be and their lifestyles are by the shape of the beak, very much so. And the dunnock is squarely an insect eater, unlike the sparrows. It's the colour palette, I think, more than anything else that makes it sparrow-like. 
Yes, absolutely. So the, the name is perfect for them. So you have your Dunnock or, or Oscar Elgate's Dunnog, so little, little brown thing, little brown fella. Uh, and that's a perfect description. They kind of slip under the radar. Um, they also have, uh, you know, they don't really draw attention to themselves. And that goes for their song as well. It's not the prettiest of bird songs by any means. I mean, I'm sure to a female Dunnock, it sounds absolutely beautiful. Um, but to the human ear, it's a sort of a thin, scratchy little sound. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't, it's not something you'd listen to for relaxation or you'd really remark on. Uh, and I think that's the secret of their success. We humans don't notice them very much and the predators don't notice them either. They blend into the background uh, and that means that they're less likely to fall victims to hawks or cats or foxes. Uh, and they seem to well to cope with human disturbance too. They're able to make their lives around our gardens, around our farms, or even around our towns and cities because they're actually not that needy. They have very small territories and if they can find enough food by way of insects, um, and in that kind of case, they're a real gardener's friend because they love aphids particularly, but they just have minimum food requirements. They can do very well. They don't migrate either. They stay with us year round. They're able to establish themselves in a particular territory. And uh, studies of, of, of ringing, you know, putting the ring metal rings on birds' legs have shown us that dunnocks move among the least of any Irish bird. Uh, they're the most loyal bird you have in the garden. Uh, they'll be there for, for their whole lives, probably within 100 metres or so, as were their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them. They, they, they don't move very far at all. And there's another twist to the migratory stroke, non-migratory distinction that I only discovered in the last few days. I noticed a black cat feeding in my garden. It's another common Irish bird, I know, but one that I'd always thought of as a summer visitor. So I headed straight for the Birdwatch Ireland website, www.birdwatchireland.ie, highly recommended, by the way. So if you do nothing else during this lockdown, listener, an in-depth read of the site will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life. Anyway, what I learned was that there are black caps and there are black caps. That takes a bit of explaining, Niall. It does. And if you look at some of the older field guides, they'll tell you that uh, the black cap is a, indeed a common Irish bird, but strictly a summer visitor, only found here you know, during the breeding season. Uh, and um, those books have literally had to be rewritten because over the last 20, 25 years or so, we've seen... Uh, black caps overwintering in, in Irish gardens and in Britain as well it happens and this is a this is you know a pretty common feature now they're increasing year on year and people are wondering why why is this the case what's happening why are these birds that tend to be you know confined to the woodlands in the summer where they have a very beautiful song actually one of the prettiest songs of any Irish bird they wouldn't visit a garden in the summer why are they staying for the winter and it turned out well, actually they're not our black caps that breed here in the summer they migrate as normal down to the Mediterranean basin so they're heading to the likes of Iberia to North Africa that kind of area and they leave and what's happening is a separate population from central Europe so Germany Poland that kind of region they're coming to spend the winter in Britain and in Ireland and some work has been done into this and it's actually been really fascinating I was mentioning earlier about how evolution is an ongoing process well here's one of the perfect examples what happened is some it seems some sort of random genetic mutation occurred in, in a black cap that caused it to migrate the wrong direction. The way birds migrate is it's controlled by hormones again. Um, when the daylight you know, reaches certain levels, something in their brain tells them, I have to go now, I have to go. And they fly pretty much a preset distance in a preset direction. And they seem to be controlled by separate genes. And what's happening to the black caps um, from, from Central Europe is they're migrating the, the correct distance, but in the wrong direction. And if they were a longer distance migrant, like a bird like a willow warbler, which winters in sub-Saharan Africa, and they, if that happened to them in Germany, if they flew, if they flew uh, westwards rather than southwards, what would happen is after their preset uh, distance had been reached, they would be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. There would be no land and they would die. Because the black caps move a shorter distance, just by chance, they went in the wrong direction and ended up stopping in Ireland and in Britain, where they found garden bird tables and lots of winter berries and all that, and not only survived, but thrived. 
And that meant that when they migrated back to their breeding grounds in Central Europe again, uh, they were in better physical condition than the birds that had gone the correct way. Uh, and But then what happened was they were able to get the better territories, they were fitter, they maybe got there a little bit faster, so they had their pick of the best mates and the best territories, the most food, so they had more chicks. And of course they passed that mutant gene onto the chick, and then the chicks would then migrate the wrong way again and thrive. And this goes on for several generations until all of a sudden the wrong way becomes the right way because it's conveying a survival advantage. And what happens is these two populations of blackcaps we have in Ireland, neither knows that the other exists. They never meet each other. Uh, the winter birds will be leaving us soon and going back to Europe. Uh, and if that process continues for maybe 100,000 years or more, well, that's where new species come from. Uh, so there's lots of, it's already down to chance and whether, that, you know, whether, whether uh, a mutation conveys an advantage or a disadvantage. And that's what's happening with the blackcaps. Yeah, evolution isn't something that only happens over millennia in the way that I think we tend to think of it. Uh, populations of individual species can vary dramatically in quite short periods of time and often that's evolution in action you know as one species moves into the space left by another or simply out competing it so even though we humans as the dominant species have a lot to answer for in terms of habitat loss climate change and even predation it's not always about us is it change happens there's one example i can think of and that's the collared dove which i think until the 20th century was pretty much unknown in Western Europe, but for no apparent reason suddenly expanded its population out of the Balkans quite explosively in the 20th century to the point where it's a very common bird in Ireland today. No, that, that's true. I mean, we, we obviously as, as a species have had a, a massive impact on many wild creatures, including birds, and, and I think we do have to take a share of the blame there. But also, um, you're right, I mean, some, some birds are just naturally more resilient and opportunistic than others, um, especially birds that tend to be generalists. So if you're too narrowly focused on one particular type of food, um, you know, the, the, if, when that food is abundant, you do really well. But if that food disappears, you, you die. There's no other option. Birds like collared doves were able to take advantage of something. We don't know what it was. It just as as you said, it was just a, uh, an unknown reason they expa- expanded all across Europe. It's amazing to think that the very first um, record uh, in Ireland was uh, was in, in a breeding one was in, in 1959 in Glasnevin Cemetery. Uh, within 10 years of that, they were all across the country. And today they're in our top 20 common garden birds. Uh, it seems that there was a, a vacant niche there that they were slotted into with no um, you know, detriment to any, any species that was already here. So that seems to work very, very well for them. One of the key reasons, I think, with the colour dove was that where it came from originally was you know in the balkans or the edge of the range but they're also down through through arabia and through into parts of asia uh, it was more sort of subtropical climate so they never evolved um, breeding seasons that would correspond to to the seasons as we know them here in ireland they didn't really have a, a spring a summer an autumn and a winter it was kind of a a hot season and a slightly cooler season or maybe a wet season and a dry season so this meant that they never evolved distinct breeding seasons so the collar dove was able to breed at any time of the year so when they came across western european gardens where there's lots of food and shelter around they could nest and produce many broods throughout the year and those would move a bit further and a bit further until eventually they got as far as as ireland uh, so that was a species that was well poised to be able to, to, to take advantage of some conditions we're not quite sure what they were and thrive i think another good example of that we're seeing right now in front of us at the moment is the great spotted woodpecker so this is a bird that uh, for us in birdwatch ireland has been reported quite a bit at at, uh, at garden feeders uh, we're at the moment in the middle of our irish garden bird survey and we're expecting to see uh, lots of reports of woodpeckers this winter last winter there were in 11 counties uh, in the gardens of the survey now this is a species that famously was absent from ireland uh, you'd look at a, a field guide to europe and where the great spotted woodpeckers were and most of europe including britain would be completely colored in green or whatever ireland was always blank 
Well, that's changing. About 15 years ago, uh, there were two separate colonisation events that happened quite naturally. Uh, one was in County Wicklow, where birds seem to have flown across the Irish Sea from Wales, and genetic studies have confirmed that. And then also in County Down, where birds flew across from Scotland, more or less at the same time. It seems the catalyst for that was that uh, the, the populations of Britain were pretty much at saturation points. The species became so common there, there were no territories left for the young birds. Woodpeckers are normally very reluctant to cross water. They're not really designed for it. They have very laborious flapping flights, so they can't soar. So crossing water is difficult. But from, from parts, of, you know, parts of Scotland and parts of Wales, they would have been able to see Ireland. You know, they, they would have been able to see, uh, to, to, see, to see parts of the Northern Ireland coast. And the Wicklow Mountains are probably visible from Snowdonia to those birds. So they knew there was land. So some pioneers set off across the Irish Sea, found, um, found woodland that had no woodpeckers in it. So all of a sudden they were in paradise. There was no competition. Uh, and they've slowly but surely been expanding since then. So that's a species that's colonising just in the, in, in the last few years. And I'd say, again, it might follow the way of the collared dove. Within, within a few more years, it could be a very common uh, species that people will be almost blasé about seeing. We always know when, when, uh, when a species gets, um, gets quite common or people are blasé about it because that's when people start complaining about them to Birdwatch Ireland. So um, at the moment, it's still, um, oh, we have this wonderful woodpecker in the garden. It's amazing to see it. It's so beautiful. Um, maybe in a few years, it'll be, this woodpecker's hogging the peanuts all the time. Won't let the other birds have a look in. How do you deter them? So that's how you know when, when something's established. In fact, if you were to go by a field guide that's older than maybe 20 years or so, you'd be under the impression that woodpeckers are completely absent from Ireland. I can actually remember the first time I heard one in Wicklow a few years ago. I thought I must be imagining it, but they're here and making that incredible, incredibly evocative sound in more and more places. It is, and how evocative that can be as well. I mean, I think, you know, the reverse situation is something people have experienced perhaps uh, with the corncrake in Ireland, a species that's declined massively. Uh, back in the 1950s, uh, there were surveys done and they showed that there were an estimated 50,000 pairs of corncrakes across Ireland. Today, uh, there's only around 150 pairs left. Um, they're really marginalised in parts of the West, mainly in quite remote areas. They're gone from vast majority of the country where they were once common. And it used to be that people would complain about this bird it would keep them awake at night it would be you know it's just so annoying because the sound isn't particularly pretty it's just a, a weird sort of croaking noise of a uh, 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 kind of noise like this uh, and uh, would drive people nuts and now there are people who'd, who, who'd give their back teeth to hear it again uh, because it's a piece of their childhood that's been lost I had a wonderful experience um, a few years ago I led um, a group of bird watchers on a trip to eastern Poland which is a wildlife paradise it's absolutely wonderful there and there's wonderful marshlands there near to the border with Belarus and uh, it's, it's, it's full of corncrakes they're really quite common still there and you can hear them croaking away at night and several of the people who were on the trip with us um, who were of a certain vintage they, they, uh, they remembered hearing them commonly as children hadn't heard them maybe in 50 years and we had people just spontaneously unexpectedly bursting into tears because it brought back the memories of their childhood and of their families and their parents in a really real way. Like people really felt that they had they had an emotional connection to this bird that they never realised. They didn't know they, they didn't know what they were missing until they heard it again. I think that bird sounds could transport you in a way and it also shows brings really home to people the effect that we have on our environment. Um, so you know, you know the, so the problem with the cuckoo now is that that's declining too. So you know, in a few years' time, in a Leitrim bog, you might not hear it anymore, uh, and that again would be tragic. So I think you know we need to cherish what we have and, and realize how lucky we have it and how good we have it before it's gone. Conversely, if you were to believe the makers of movies and TV programs, you'd imagine that every open space in Ireland has a resident curlew. They're so fond of dropping in that sound clip. Oh, and there it is. It's the sound, yeah, the sound of wilderness, isn't it? It's like, uh, uh, 
very often when you watch watch any kind of any kind of film or TV program where they're trying to show wilderness, they might show um, an eagle soaring in the sky or something, or, or even just a canyon or something, and you'll hear this screeching sound, the scream, the echoes. That's the sound of a red-tailed hawk, um, and most people think now this is what a bald eagle sounds like. They make a sort of a fairly pathetic twittering noise. But just it's become a shorthand for wilderness and for the sound of majestic wildlife. Another one like that is it's the, a bird called the great northern diver. In North America, it's called the common loon, and so many films and TV programs I've heard that it's, it's it's a very eerie, sort of spooky, but very atmospheric and melancholy, beautiful uh, sound. Yeah, absolutely. And you hear this on you hear this um, on, on programs and films and documentaries and everything. You know, it might be coming from the Sahara Desert or from the Amazon rainforest or the, the you know all these these habitats. Now, this is a bird of boreal bogs that spends the winter in the sea off the coast of, uh, of Europe. And another sound that I think is very evocative um, is the sound of the swift um, in urban areas. That screaming sound of the summer. It's the sound of summer in Ireland. Uh, and again, a lot of people don't don't realize it because that species is, is unfortunately becoming rare the swift is a, is a wonderful migrant and they spend more time on the wing than any other any other bird and they make the screaming sound in, in the summer in warm summer evenings and it's just so evocative it's not, not necessarily beautiful but lovely yeah certainly to me the devil bird as i think it was known in the middle ages is the essential sound of summer if you have a free travel card did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across ireland Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Now, without getting nerdy, because that's explicitly something we're going to try and avoid on Bird Table, I want to tackle an issue that's not so much one of identification as differentiation. And it's surrounding gulls, or seagulls, as they're often lumped together, as though they were all the same thing. But especially here in Ireland, they're really not, are they? So, Niall, how many different types of gull do we have here in Ireland? Oh, Ireland has amongst the highest gull diversity in the whole world. So on the Irish list, you're, oh gosh, there must be easily 20 species recorded in Ireland over the years. And of those, over a dozen would be actually very regular and quite common. Uh, so um, yeah, dismissing them all under the umbrella of gulls or indeed seagulls, which is even worse, uh, that 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 that's um, doing them a real disservice, I think. Um, so the reason that I don't like the word seagull is because uh, many gulls are not tied to the sea. It's quite normal to see them going well inland. Uh, people often ring us in Birdwatch Ireland and say oh, something, something's gone. It's a sign of the apocalypse. So you know, I I, I live um, you know I, I live in Roscommon and there's gulls moving in, or I'm in, in Leitrim or Leash or wherever. That's perfectly normal. Um, the black-headed gull, which is a is a fairly small gull and one of our commonest species, it regularly moves well inland. They breed up in the mountains. Um, the, the herring gull, which when I say the word seagull is probably the word the bird that most people are thinking of. That's the sort of bigger, more brutish kind of gull with the silver grey back and, and the, the white plumage and, and the uh, the yellow beak with the red spot on either side. Uh, that um, is indeed quite common around the coasts, but it will go well inland too. It'll often follow the plough. Um, they'll happen to be found well up river systems. Whereas other species of gull, like um, like the great blackback gull, which is the biggest gull in the world, and even more so the kittiwake, which is a beautiful gull. It's a really sort of like um, gentle looking facial expression. They are much more tied to the marine 
environment. You find them, rarely find them far from the sea. Uh, but there are many, many different species. Um, for a lot of bird watchers, um, gull identification is a real challenge because not only do the species look different as adults, but they, it takes them three or four years to reach adulthood and the juvenile plumages and everything and the immature plumages all look very different as well. Um, but I do think we should realize there is a big diversity of them there. And I have to say as well, I think they are much maligned. I think that um, most gulls don't cause any problems whatsoever. In fact, most gull species avoid humans or, or if they do see us, they, they don't impose upon us in any way. Uh, a lot of the complaints do come around the heron gulls and to a lesser extent perhaps a bird called the lesser black-backed gull because they have started to nest on rooftops particularly in urban areas particularly in, in Dublin and in Waterford but in some other areas as well and this is a behavior that seems to be expanding and people also worry about the fact um, that they get quite aggressive around people and they want to be fed um, now uh, there's a couple of reasons for that and it all comes down to to our own behavior and what we've done to the gulls people are always on the border trying saying the herring gull populations are out of control they need to be they need to be culled they need to be they need to be brought down to size in fact we've already done that as a species the people find it hard to believe the herring gull is on the endangered list it's on the red list in ireland their population declined by over 90 percent in the course of just three decades and the reason that they're coming more into urban areas is not because they're thriving it's because they're in crisis um, their normal breeding grounds on offshore islands have become overrun with rats and mink and with humans all of which are you know the, the rats and the mink aren't native they've been introduced by man uh, and also overfishing in our oceans have depleted their their food stocks uh, so they have no choice but to move into urban areas Areas where they find tall buildings um, with, with roofs or may as well be an island they're surrounded by traffic rather than by sea but it's protected from predators and then they find there's lots of food around they can raid the bins because we humans are very messy creatures or we, we've discarded rubbish on the streets and then they found well people in parks seem to throw bread at the ducks I'm gonna have some of that bread please uh, and um, you know why are we happy to feed the ducks but not the not the gulls? They're just taking the easy option. I think what's important as well is that people don't deliberately feed the gulls because that's where the problem starts. Some rogue gulls learn to associate humans with food and think, ah, I, I can just, there's a human, it should feed me. I'm going to go and demand food and I'm going to get upset if they don't give me that food. So I think it's about our own behaviour. Uh, the thing we don't see as well is that on our city streets is they're actually cleaning up a lot of the rubbish that otherwise would be eaten by rats and by foxes and so on. And also they're doing it during the day, so we see it. We're not at night seeing the foxes and the dogs and the rats going through the bins, um, but they are doing it as well. Uh, so I think we need to be a bit, have a bit more respect for the gulls. And I think you're right, um, not lumping them all in the bracket of just generic gull is a good way to start. So I think I'm right in saying that in an urban or suburban setting, there are basically four species of gulls you are likely to see in Ireland. In order of size, they are the black-headed gull, which wears a balaclava in summer, but just a smudgy spot behind the eye in winter. They have red legs. The herring gull is substantially bigger, has pink legs and a silvery grey back with a heavy yellow beak, as distinct from the black-headed gull's much finer and darker beak. Closer up, the herring gull's beak has a red spot on either side at the base. The lesser black-backed gull is bigger still, with a much darker back and yellow legs, and the great black-backed gull is a whopper. Very dark upper wings, which of course are its back when it's at rest, and pinkish legs. So... No more talk of seagulls, please. And for your listening pleasure, here's what they sound like. The black-headed gull. The herring gull. The lesser black-backed gull. And the great black-backed gull. 
Now, if there's anything bird-related, bird-inspired or just tenuously bird-like you want to bring to our attention on Bird Table, drop us a line at our email address. That's uh, birds at birdtable.ie. See what I did there? Uh, We look forward to hearing from you. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the last half hour or so of Bird Talk and that you'll join myself, Conor O'Hagan and Niall Hatch for more of the same in our next podcast as we move further into the season and share some of the pleasures, puzzles and rewards of birdwatching in Ireland. Until then, keep an eye on whatever platform you use for more Senior Times podcasts. Until the next time, my thanks to you for listening and to Niall Hatch for chatting and illuminating. subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times.